do that. And we don't get invited to much stuff. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's turn to Romans chapter 11 tonight. Romans 11. It's a new area of territory that I promised we would invade. Don't forget, should I still be announcing this, Joanne? Okay. The, uh, the ladies are planning, but I gave rave reviews to this, incidentally, the Joan, Jonah and the whale. Astounding depiction of mercy rejoicing over judgment. The ladies are planning a bus trip to the Sight and Sound Theater in Lancaster, PA, to see the production Jonah. And this event will be on Monday, October 9th. And there's an information and sign-up sheet at the table if you're planning to attend. And please let Joanne right there, Joanne Stewart, or Kim. No, Kim Buck, that is, as soon as possible, so that the ticket and bus seating can be reserved. Rave reviews from us that have seen it, Pam and I and my grandson, so, and others who have seen it, Bruce, and others who have seen the play. Phenomenal and astonishing. The Word of God alive, the Bible alive. And no, Tony, you can't go. Not with the ladies. You can go on your own and get a ticket, you know. Okay. Romans chapter 11. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for the expanded opportunity for fellowship that Pastor Brown just alerted us to, and we pray that you'll direct us in the way you want us to go. This can be a tremendous opportunity for fellowship with fellow believers in this area. We thank you for that. We also thank you, Father, for the, providing another opportunity to engage with the scriptures, your holy word, for the purpose of edification, for the purpose of upbuilding of this assembly, so that we can be upbuilding to others. We thank you for this privilege. We pray that you'll open our eyes to behold the face of him whose image we bear so that we may be transformed from another degree of glory to a neck to the next into the likeness of his image. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight I just want to introduce Romans 11 with a little bit of biblical mathematics, and that would be pleroma plus pas. Two Greek words, pleroma plus pas, and you'll see how this appears in the text, equals everybody. We've already taught on everything means everything. Everybody means everybody. And we're, we're about, I want to introduce really Romans 11 tonight because there's a lot to this passage. And in fact, Romans 9 through 11, the, those two chap, the three chapters hang together, and they're in competition. That section is in competition for one of the most universalistic passages in the Pauline epistles and perhaps even in all of the Bible. 
And so we want to pay special attention to this like we did with 1 Corinthians 15 and other passages like we did with Romans 5, 12 to 21, and like we may do again if it comes about that we're permitted to continue in the word in Romans and maybe do a Roman study or a Galatians study. So that may be what's next. I'm not sure. I'm praying about it constantly. The, pri- the primary theological functional specialty that's underway in our study is a very challenging one called interpretation. It's one of nine theological functional specialties. And we're striving to derive Paul's insight, Paul's level of insight from his epistles. That's why one of the reasons why I said, let's call this better call Paul, because our desire is to derive his own insight into the apocalyptic revelation of God's righteousness, which we call the gospel. So we're striving to derive Paul's insight from his epistles in what we may call Ephesians, in which the traditionally is called Ephesians. We know it's a letter written by Paul from prison to Laodicea, but in what may be a very early epistle of his, not a late one, Ephesians, Paul wrote this in Ephesians 3, 4. If you read what I have written, that word read is a little stronger in the Greek. It's anagenasko. It means to know it thoroughly. It means to exegete it, expound it like we're doing it, study it. So if you read or study what I have written, you will grasp my insight. So he's actually inviting us to grasp that insight. My insight about the mystery of the Messiah. What a challenge. That is our challenge. That you, if you read, again, Anagenasco is much stronger than just a cursory reading. We're talking about a full, thorough study. It means to know up or to, to know again, Anagenasco, to know thoroughly. That mystery about the Messiah, he goes on to say, has to do in part with and in really in seed form with the participation of Jews and Gentiles alike in one body in Christ by the gospel. As you'll notice if you read up through verse 6 and then even onward. But we should also note, and this is important for an interpretation of Ephesians, That this present body of Christ, as it's called, consisting of former Jews and Gentiles, is only a provisional sign of the larger determination of God to recapitulate everything in his Christ. Ephesians 1.10. This is a recapitulation. That's what the patristic theologians like to call it, a recapitulation. That is achieved by God only through instauration or the impact of the cross. Recapitulation, this is my addition to this doctrine. Recapitulation is only accomplished through the instauration of the universe. The universal impact of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's extremely important. Jesus Christ was incarnated to be instaurated. When he was incarnated, he embodied the whole body of humanity. And when he was crucified or instaurated, he also embodied 
the whole of creation as well as all of humanity. So that the event which cannot be separated from his crucifixion, the resurrection, embodies all of creation, all of humanity also. So we should note that this mystery of the Messiah isn't just about Jews and Gentiles participating in the same privileges. That's just a provisional, proleptic truth. Because Paul had already introduced in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, the intention of God. And incidentally, another thing that's going to be coming forward is this doctrine. God is one in his intention and his action. His action and his intention are one. Just as his existence and his essence are one. God's intention, what he says, he accomplishes. Jeremiah 32.19 says it one way. Isaiah 46.10 says it in another way, more dramatically, perhaps. But so does Ephesians 1.11. His intention is an unstoppable determination that results ultimately in action. So we've called Paul with the intention of grasping his insight into the mystery of Christ, which involves the crucifixion of Jesus and his validating resurrection, the resurrection that validated his death. That's the heart of the mystery, and it will never be anything else, the heart of the mystery. And so we, the crucifixion of Jesus and his validating, vindicating resurrection is the heart of the mystery and the center And universal reconciliation is its horizon, the horizon. The more we appreciate this heart and center, the more we find it logical that the universal horizon would be arising from it. So we're moving through the thicket to get to the clearing, to use an image, where we can glimpse, and hopefully our glimpse will become a gaze at the Lord Jesus Christ in his universally rectifying significance, setting things right. Very helpful to me to compile my thoughts, as you know, has been Alaria Ramelli in her landmark book on the apocatastasis. In this connection, she wrote this, and this helped me to know where to go next. The Spirit helped me, directed me through this on pages 40 to 41, she says Romans 11 is paramount to assess Paul's universalism. In an eschatological framework, Paul states, and she indicates specifically Romans eleven twenty three to 26, and we're going to get one, Romans 11, 1 to 36, the context of this whole thing, that God, quote, has the power of grafting them, that's Israel, in again. She goes on to say, the hardening of a part of Israel. And to that I would add Mark 3, 5, as well as Isaiah 6, 9 to 10 to, to document that. The hardening of a part of Israel is taking place until the totality, and that's where the word play Roma comes in, the totality of the nations or Gentiles enters, enters under the lordship of Christ, enters into the kingdom of God, enters into the 
saving sovereignty of God, as Pastor Mike Lee called it, and I still call it that, the saving sovereignty of God. And then she has, until the Gentile world enters in its fullness. Pleroma means totality. It doesn't just mean a fullness out of a group. It means the full group. It means the fullness of the whole of the Gentile nations, all of the nations. As we've seen from Revelation 21, 24 to 27, all the nations, as we've seen from Psalm 22, 27, all the nations throughout the Old Testament scriptures, this is promised. So she says, until the Gentile world enters into its fullness, has entered, and then all, pass Israel shall be saved. Play Roma, the totality of the nations enters, and then all, pass Israel will be saved. That, of course, is found in Romans 11.25b and 26. And so you have Pleroma plus Pas equals all humanity. For God has closed all, the word Pantas is used there, Pantas. She's really getting all the exegetical words together here, Pantas. For all, God has closed all under disobedience, so to have mercy upon all. Romans 11.32. I think she sees there the climax of Romans 9 through, really Romans 9.1 through Romans 11.32, the climactic verse, mercy upon all. Pleroma in the Septuagint translation means totality. In the English translation of Psalm 24.1, which is the Septuagint Psalm 23.1, in parallel with pantes, or all. And also, in Psalm 49.12, and this is maddening to me, but that's Isaiah 50.12 in the English. In Psalm 88.12, which in the English is Psalm 89.11, is maddening. And Psalm 95.11, which is the English 96.11. But the Septuagint has the Pleroma always in parallel with Panta. Also in Psalm 97.7, which is the English 98.7. Jeremiah 8.16, Jeremiah 29.2, Ezekiel 12.19, in parallel again with all or Pantes in Ezekiel 19.7. And 30, 12, all of which have sometimes different correspondences to the English translation. So that's maddening. But the point is, play Roma of the nations plus pas, all of Israel, equals everybody, all of humanity. There's no question that that's what Paul intends. That's the ultimate thing. So you see, the point is, what are we going to do then when he talks about vessels of wrath unto destruction in Romans 9? Vessels of mercy. What are we going to do when he says, I have loved Jacob, but hated, rejected Esau? What are we going to do with all these verses? I'll tell you one thing we're not going to do with them. Run with those verses and construct doctrines out of them apart from the context of the whole of Romans 9 through 11, in which all of God's wrath is encased in his love. All of God's judgment is encased in his mercy. And so when these things have been atomized, and by that I mean A-T-O-M-I-Z-E-D, atomized, split up in the wrong way, 
They have formed into doctrines like the doctrine of double predestination, which makes God into a capricious monster. And that's because there's a totality here in Romans 9.1 all the way through 11.36, which climaxes with a doxology, a worshipful gratitude expressed to God by whom all things have come, through whom all things have come, and to him to whom all things return, the universal return. We've mentioned last week, and it's worth repeating, in Jonah, the Ninevites are converted first, and then Jonah. Because in Jonah 4, Jonah represents Israel, and he's not converted from his resantiment, or his, what I would call from here on out, his elitist elective arrogance. And that's something that Paul is reproving as something that he's reprimanding in all of our hearts and all of the hearts of all people. There is an elective elitist arrogance and a we versus them or a me versus you thing, a, 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 a sense of entitlement through election, which Jonah had. And he was converted from his resentment after Yahweh spared and converted Nineveh, which represents the nations, the Gentiles. And then he confronted Jonah over the loss of the plant that sheltered him. And this is a presentiment. Jonah chapter 4, especially all the way through verse 11, the last verse in Jonah, is a presentiment. So I've kind of blended resentiment with presentiment of the eschatological salvation of all of Israel after the totality of the nations enters the kingdom of God. The Lord, Yahweh, a.k.a. Yeshua, confronted Jonah at the end, and he said, you're upset about this plant, but what about the 120,000 Ninevites plus animals, many animals? God actually said that, plus many animals. Animal lovers, pet lovers, cattle lovers, all all that are restored. Emphasizing God's redemption toward all creation. So we may add to this, and I'm intending to iron this out. There's a lot here. I would add to the insight that Ramelli says about Romans 11.16 and the concept of the root being holy and so are the branches When God introduced himself to Moses, he said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And when he said that, he identified himself as the God of all humankind. And he also identified himself as the God of resurrection and of life. He's not a God of the dead, but of the living, he said to the Sadducees. And Paul says that the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are holy. They were sanctified by God. And so he said the whole is holy, which is all of Israel. And all of Israel being saved is an indicator that all creation comes under God's redemptive power. This is something that I'll have to iron out, and it's going to take a long time. We're also going to get into the fact that in Romans eleven sixteen and following, the first fruits being holy, Paul says, so is the whole lump of dough, speaking of the meal offering, the peace offering, 
And in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 to 23, Christ is called the first fruits in terms of the whole of humanity. And so if the first fruits is holy and Christ is the first fruits, then the whole of humanity is holy. See, God has made him to be for us holiness, sanctification. And that's going to come up. And again, that'll have to be ironed out, fanned out. Since in this series I'm aiming strictly at an answer to the question as to whether Jesus is portrayed in Paul's epistles in his universally saving significance, we are engaging, and I use that word in terms of an almost a military engagement, with certain passages in Paul. And not we are not dealing with every verse in Paul. I don't even know if I have the time to do that in my, the rest of my life here, although it would be great to just do all of Paul's verses. The passages we're appealing to and attempting to interpret are representative of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and his universal impact of the cross of Christ in such a way that it's highly improbable that Paul would contradict this vision in any other passage. In other words, if we get to these climactic passages in his epistles and they're obviously universalistic, then it's highly unlikely that Paul would anywhere else in his epistles contradict that vision. That would be entirely antagonistic to the Spirit's inspiration of Paul. So this will once again be apparent in our treatment of Romans 11. Romans 11 cannot ultimately be understood outside of its context. It recalls everything from Romans 9.1. And following, it really goes all the way back to Romans 1 1, but specifically Romans 9 through 11 hangs together as a universalistic section of Scripture. And so nothing can be taken of the little parts that people use, Calvinist and Reformed and otherwise, use to show vessels of wrath, etc. The way we're seeing it, those are going to be constructed and seen within a sphere of divine mercy. There are things that God does within history in which he raises up vessels of wrath like Pharaoh and those vessels of wrath undergo destruction. That is not an eschatological thing. That's a historical thing. And that's within the context of God's overall plan to reconcile everything in the heavens and on earth to himself. Through the blood of Christ's cross, it's always through the blood of Christ's cross. Always by the blood of Christ's cross, Christ's crucifixion, the death of Christ on the cross. So Romans 11 cannot ultimately be understood outside of its context, which is the entire section, Romans 9 through 11. Just as you can't take chapter 9 or 10, and interpret them outside of the other chapters in this section. Taken together then, Romans 9, 10, and 11 is one of the most universalistic passages in all of Paul, as well as all the scriptures for that matter. And moreover, there's another link here. There is a connection between this Romans chapters 9 through 11 to the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, And I'm going to show you sometime 
who wrote those, but that's not the point right now. They are canonical. They are part of the scripture. They are part of the scripture that is for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. They are God-breathed. They are divinely spirated, and they are for us today. But there is a connection between this section and the pastoral epistles, a link, a bridge, and we'll follow. We'll cross that bridge, too, when we come to it, and we've already come to it in one sense. And I refer again to note number 738, which is in Stauffer's New Testament Theology, page 319 to 320, with the as an emphasis that I've placed and underlined here, but I want to reiterate this because the section by Ramelli and the section by Stauffer and a few things by Kazeman are theological insights for our time that are helpful, very helpful in the very difficult task of interpretation. It's a very difficult and very, well, I'll just say that I approach it with fear and trembling. Stauffer writes in note 738, the idea of universal salvation did not die out even among Paul's disciples. He has the conviction, as many other scholars do, as I am growing in, that much of the pastoral epistles were written by a Pauline disciple. There are, it's impossible to see it otherwise once you see that the authorship is tied to th- events and things that happened in the second century. But that's not the point. The, the point is these are canonical, these are biblical, these are, if they're pseudepigraphical, that's an honor to Paul, not a takeaway from Paul. But he says the idea of a universal salvation did not die out even among Paul's disciples. This shows a development of doctrinal conviction from the scriptures to the patristic theologians, and now there's even a connection of the patristic theologians studied by Ramelli to, as Fleming Rutledge has discovered, Anselm, who's after the first break of the millennium, after 1000 AD. There was also a man who understood this, this universal gospel of Paul. He was misunderstood and maligned, just like Origen was. But as Ramelli has recovered the reputation of Origen, I think Fleming Rutledge has recovered the reputation of the scholar named Anselm, and we'll get into some of the stuff that he said. The Stauffer's note goes on to say, this is the most important part of that whole book, I find, is note 738 at the end. He says, the author of 1 Timothy 2.1 and following directly connects the motif of intercession in Romans 9.3 with the universal salvation in Romans 11:36 and so provides us with an authoritative testimony as to the earliest exegesis of Romans 9 through 11 in other words he's saying 1 Timothy 2 1 and following actually is an interpretation of Romans 9 through 11 in a kind of a summary fashion And then he goes on to say, he exhorts to intercession, quote, for all men or all human beings. He said the pathos of such intercession is, however, rooted in the conviction. Christ has given his life a ransom, not only anti-polon, which is for many, Mark 10.45, but huper 
Pantone, which is for all. He quotes also Hebrews 2.9, and you'd do well to know that verse. 1 Timothy 2.6 as well. Theos pantas anthropus thele sothenai is the Greek phrase used. God wills to save all humanity. And his will and his action are one. His intention and his action are one. He's not only mighty in counsel, but he's powerful in deed. He does what he wills. And he says, I will do all my will. As we know from Isaiah 46.10. Another thing we're going to have to fan out and iron out. Stauffer goes on to say, our text says God wills, not merely God would like. The word is thele, and we've looked at that word quite a bit. It is one of the words that describes God's intentionality. It's T-H-E-L-E-I. The word is thele. It's used in 1 Timothy 2, 4. Thele comes from Thelo, and he says in this context, it means the irresistible will of God. That's tied also to something that I also have to fan out. What is irresistible grace? Is there such a thing? Has God brought an irresistible invasion of grace to planet Earth? And so he says, the word thele means the irresistible will of God, which is stronger than anything we can mean by world, and which has power over every creaturely will, and so carries its own guarantee of fulfillment within itself. He goes on to say that the counterpart of this is bulestai. That's the Greek word used by Peter, who was also in, a, in, second Peter, in first and second Peter a disciple of Paul in a different way, bulestai. It's related to, that's its counterpart in 2 Peter 3.9. God is not willing that any should perish. God is not willing that any should perish. God is willing that all humanity be saved and come to the super eminent knowledge of the truth that's embodied in Jesus Christ. So again, and I've quoted this and I may quote it again. In this sense, God is called in 1 Timothy 4.10, the savior of all men, especially them that now believe, but not only of believers. Then he says, confer with 1 Timothy 6.13. We've already looked at that. God is said there to be the one who gives life to all all things. He gives life not only to all in Adam or to all in Christ, but to all in creation. In this sense, he said the number of predestinated, or the, he uses the Latin term numerus predestinatorum, the number of predestinated in Hebrews 12.23 are thought of as the church of the firstborn. And in James 1.18, as the first fruits of his creatures. 
And then we've quoted this before, and again, I'm, I'm not going to apologize. All this is necessary as an introduction to our passage. In fine, which means fine-tuning, the church of God is not the end but the beginning, the beginning of a renewal and a redemption of all mankind. That, to me, is Ecclesiology 102. He then quotes, and this is what really struck me, he quotes Romans 11.1, 1, Romans 11.7, Romans 11.16, and Romans 11.18. So suffice it to say, we're laboring on an introduction to Romans 11. Note especially, the church of God is not the end. This already challenges our elitist elective arrogance. The church is not the end. But the beginning. The beginning of a renewal and a redemption of all mankind. Now, we're going to look at God's reprimand of Elijah a few verses down the road. In verses right after Romans 11.1, a reprimand of Elijah. I alone am left. Elitist, elective, arrogance. God's reprimand of Elijah a few verses into Romans 11, is a reprimand of all who indulge in elective, elitist arrogance. This reprimand of elective, elitist arrogance runs all the way through Romans 11. In fact, it goes into Romans 12, 1 to 2. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and stop being conformed to this age, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your thinking to demonstrate that will of God, which is good and righteous and just, which is complete in itself. And then he said, according to the grace given to me, the apostolic authority given to me, I say to every one of you not to be arrogant, not to think in terms of illusion, not to think in terms of, in the context, elective, elitist arrogance. So this reprimand of elective, elitist arrogance runs all the way through Romans 11 and into Romans 12, 1 to 3, and even after that, in terms of spiritual charisma, charismata, gifts, And this is in line with the beneficial purposes of the scriptures, which are spelled out in 2 Timothy 3.16. You know the word, all scripture. In Paul's epistles, our scripture, as 2 Peter 3.15-16 says, as are the pastoral epistles, as are the Old Testament scriptures, which narrate the episode of Elijah that Paul is citing in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, especially verses 10, 14, and 18. All scripture, Paul said, is divinely spirated or God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for reprimand, pros elenkon, for correction, pros epanorthosin, correction, for training with regard to righteousness, which is God's act of deliverance. So Romans 11, especially in certain sections, is reprimand and correction. 
regarding this thinking. It's a thinking that needs to be radically rehabilitated. That's why we come to church, a radical rehabilitation of our thinking, a radical conversion of our epistemological thinking. Epistemology is simply the the study of the ways of knowing. Being a new creation involves a whole new way of living, but it also involves a whole new way of thinking and of knowing. Paul demonstrated this himself when he said, once I was, I knew Christ after the flesh. Now I know him not that way anymore. There's a radical epistemological rehabilitation happened in Paul. So Romans 11, and so therefore, if you're, and you and I are going to come up to Paul's insight and grasp his insight, there's going to be an epistemological change, a radical change in the way we know, in the way we think, and in the way we view humankind and creation. The love of Christ now constrains me, Paul says. That's what the result is. The love of Christ now controls me. Because I have determined that if one died for all, then all have died. And if any person is in Christ, that is the evidence. That is exhibit A of a new creation. And on and on it goes into 2 Corinthians 5.19 because God was in Christ. God was not abandoning Christ on the cross. God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself. So again, second Timothy three sixteen. all scripture is divinely spirated and useful for teaching, for reprimand, for correction, for training or discipline with regard to righteousness, which we now know as God's act of deliverance as it's translated into human Rectification. Romans 11, especially in certain sections, is reprimand and correction. So be prepared for it. It's reprimand concerning a kind of thinking, thinking which needs to be radically rehabilitated, as we know from Romans 12, 2, since it is the epistemological or way of thinking of the present evil age. Something dawned on me recently as I look around and as I see the way things are done and the way things are thought and the way things are going in this world, I realized I hate this age. I hate this evil age. And it doesn't make me bitter because I know that God sent his son to die for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. I also know that 2 Timothy 4.10 says there's a problem when people love this age. Demas has deserted me. Paul is meant, is made to say, Demas has deserted me. Having come to fall in love, and the word is actually agape, it's from agape, with this age. It grieves my heart as a pastor to see people who love something about this age because it means that they love their life as defined by this age and they're going to lose it. And that's not hell, but that there is, I thought of it again today, weeping and gnashing of teeth. People say, well, that's hell. No, it isn't. 
It's what you do when your Adamic ontology is separated from your participating life in Christ. Weeping and gnashing of teeth are both signs of one, the grief, two, the pain of separation. It is painful to be separated from the old Adam. So, weeping and gnashing of teeth are merely poetic demonstrations of the grief, weeping, and the pain, gritting of the teeth, of being separated from the Adamic ontology and from this world's way of thinking because you sometimes feel isolated and alienated and Jesus said the time is going to come when you're going to be in sorrow and the whole world's happy. You ever have that experience? You say, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to be happy and the whole world's miserable, but the whole world's happy and I'm miserable. Well, then you're a Christian. This age is hateful. I hate it. I don't hate people, I don't hate nations, I don't hate, there's a lot of things I don't hate, but I hate this age, and I realized that's okay, (laughs) it's all right. In fact, it's not all right to love this age, because it's an evil age, and we're being rescued from it. So this goes toward, and I'll lighten up a little bit, if you ever listen to George Thorogood, his most famous song is bad to the bone. But he also has a song, Who Do You Love? And that's the big question. Who do you love? What do you love? This should be a Sunday sermon. Maybe I'll save, save the punch of this for Sunday. Even better, Easter Sunday. Blow the bonnets right off people. And no, no insult meant for Tom and Lynn Bonnet. But uh, <laughs> so right in the middle of exegeting this, it, it, it dawned on me that loving this present age is cherishing the Adamic ontology. It's loving the old Adam in you. It's loving our life as defined by the present evil age. And that's what I'm beginning to hate, even in social media, trying to define people's lives and define our identities. I I personally hate that. I can only expose myself to that stuff on TV so long. And I've told you about the ads, advertisements. There's only a few that are okay, but it's, it's everything. In this age is worthy of being hated. And the more you hate the age, the more you love the people that God came to rescue from it. The evil age is what it is because of Adamic ontology. It is what it is because of hamartiology, Paul's understanding of sin. Sin is a far more grave thing than you've ever imagined it to be. And I like what Fleming Rutledge says if you've ever found yourself to be and feel very sinful, the only time you feel very sinful is when you've already been delivered from sin. And she's right. And that that can be illustrated throughout Paul, especially in Romans chapter 7, which is another 
passage that we're going to probably have to hit pretty soon. And so loving this present age is cherishing the Adamic ontology or existence in Adam or better Adam's existence in us. It is loving our life as defined by the present evil age, causing us to forfeit our life for the present as defined by the messianic age. We lose our life. If we hold on to that life as defined by the evil age and the Adamic ontology and the desire of the flesh, we hold on to that, we forfeited something else. Not eternal life, but the life that's available to us in this age, which is a participation in Messiah's life and faithfulness. That's what we forfeit. Not forever. But for a very long time, this life... No matter, it is short in one sense. It's like a vapor in one sense. But from my perspective, it's been going on for a whole long time. So, to love this present age is to forfeit our life for the present, just for now, as defined by the Messianic age, which is a life consisting of participation with Christ's life and fidelity. So this goes in turn a very long way to the correct interpretation of Jesus' words in John 12. The one who loves his life will lose it. But listen, he makes it very carefully, shows what he means here. And the one who hates his life in this world, his life in this cosmos, his life as defined by this evil age, the one who hates his life as defined by this present age where things like addiction and neurosis and failures of self-esteem and environmental handicaps have separate, have been supplanted the word sin. It's gone. Sin is gone from our vocabulary. And so we can't even appreciate the depth of the cross Because all these other words have come in. And for almost every one of them, there is a host of medicines for it. And there are, again, you you speak to me, you're speaking to someone who believes with all of my being in the medical discoveries of certain medications which have allowed people to live in this world and to even live in the messianic age because of medical discoveries. I'm not against medications, obviously, and it would be insane to be that. We'd have to go into some cultic type of thinking to do that. But what I'm saying is when a child can't pay attention, they've got to have a speed. And then later on, people wonder why they're addicted to other forms of drugs when they're taken off that drug. And when everything is assigned a medical solution, because sin is out of our vocabulary. So the one who loves his life will lose it. And what Jesus means is the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for the life of the messianic age. The life of them. See, right now, concurrently, there's the evil age and the messianic age. So you can choose to live in the life defined by the evil age and forfeit the life that's available to you right now in this age, which is the messianic life. Or you can choose the messianic life. 
and forfeit your life in this world as defined by this evil age. That's our choice right now. Choose this day whom you will serve. So we have to ask ourselves the question with George Thorogood, who do you love? To the Pharisees who opposed him, Jesus said in Luke eleven forty three, Woe to you, Pharisees, you love the front seat in the synagogues. You guys are in trouble. No, you're just here because you want to, you're, you're, that, that's, yours isn't a Pharisaical love for the front seat. It's the lack of distraction in the front row. So, woe to you, Pharisees. You love the front seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. And in John 5, 42, but I know you, he said, I know you. That you, do ha- you have no love for God within you. I have come in my father's name and you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe while accepting glory from one another? You don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. That's the main reason why people don't believe. They seek their own glory. How about 1 John 2.15? Do not love the world. I feel like I should save this for Sunday, but... I'll I'll redress it, readdress it. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. Because everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father. But is from the world. And the world, with its lust, that's the impulsive desire of the flesh, which is a power from which people cannot extract themselves. The world, with its lust, Adamic ontology, is passing away. That's the whole thing about this age. It wants to make everything be in vogue. It's in now. It's going to last it's all passing away right before your eyes what's cool today will be ugly tomorrow I always like when people look at the way they used to dance and they have old videos and they say I can't believe I did that but now they're dancing in a better way which 10 years from now they're going to say how in the hell did I even make my body do that well don't think I'm not preaching against dancing Yes. I just personally hate it, but not, never mind. I plan to dance when the Lord comes because he's the, he's the Lord of the day. I plan to dance like David. I plan to do cartwheels when the Lord comes. I plan to dance like a fool. But until then, no. And if I'm forced to at a wedding, I'm just going to stand there. Maybe take a few steps this way and this way. So, (laughs) 
I just saved a whole lot of men, a whole lot of grief just then. And the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does God's will, guess who that is? Christ. And those participating in his fidelity remains forever. That means abides to the age. They're living in the messianic age. So why am I saying all that? Because elective elitist arrogance is a part, a big part of loving the present age. And so loving the present age is riddled throughout what we call the church. The apostle Paul is leading his readers away from that epistemology of this age into a new epistemology, the way of thinking that goes with the way of living the new life which we're raised up into by the glory of the Father, Romans 6, 4, Romans 7, 6. And the new messianic age, listen carefully, which has already come, but has not yet, notice that word, has already come, but has not yet reached its consummation, its consummate fullness. So if the messianic age is available to you right in the heart of this evil age, why wouldn't we elect it? And if you begin to hate this age, God gave you that as a gift because it's motivation to lose your life as defined by this age. And don't be surprised if people hate you when you begin to lose your life as defined by this age because they feel like they're losing you. And that gets into the territory that's very difficult forsaking mother, brothers, sisters, daughters, etc. For my sake, Jesus said. That doesn't mean you're abandoning them. It means that you're not participating in the way of life defined by this age, which they happen to love. In this life, you have to wave goodbye to a few friends, sometimes to a few family members, sometimes to your contemporaries that have progressed a certain distance with you, but then don't want to go the next step. So many turned away and followed him no more. So in closing, with all of this in mind, we have a kind of preamble to Romans chapter 11. In reply to Romans 10.20, and if you look there, I think you'll see the context. This will get us right to the text. In reply, you'll, you'll see that this necessary preamble tonight was, in fact, necessary. And again, Brian, thanks for the fantastic job you did last Wednesday. It was, it was a remarkable and, as I said, seamless revelation of what we're doing here, the kinsman-redeemer aspect of the universal saving significance of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the questions in reply to Romans 10.20 shows that Romans 11 has to be taken with what has gone before. All the way back to Romans 9.1, in which Isaiah speaks. Now, 
I want to just hit Romans 11.1 1 by hitting Romans 10.20-21. Isaiah speaks for Yahweh about the Gentiles in verse 20 in quoting Isaiah 65.1. And in Romans 10.21, Yahweh is speaking through Isaiah about Israel. So we have the nations in Israel. We have what is going to be the pleroma of the nations and the pas of Israel set up here. So in Romans 10, Isaiah speaks about the Gentiles. This again comes from Isaiah 65.1, but Isaiah comes out boldly. This is my translation. Isaiah comes out boldly and speaking for Yahweh says, I was found by those who were not seeking me. I revealed myself. That's apocalyptic language. Emphanes. It's an apocalyptic expression related to apocalypto and phanerao. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. Ladies, if you go to Jonah, you're going to see that kind of concept happening. And in Romans 10.21, Paul quotes Isaiah speaking for Yahweh about Israel, quoting Isaiah 65.2. But to Israel, he says... All day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. Now, here comes the elitist, arrogant person. See, God has held out his hands all day long to a disobedient and defiant people that he's obviously going to reject. So Paul asks the question, Romans 11.1. 1. I reply then by asking, Paul says, God has not rejected his people he used the same word la'on as he did in 1021, has he? To which I also reply, most certainly not, meganoito. One of Paul's 13 uses of that powerful expression. Most certainly not. And then he says this, for I myself also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham tribe of Benjamin. You got the idea Paul's going to say, I'm an Israelite and I was the most defiant and disobedient SOB of all. And look at me now. So what do you think he's going to do for all of Israel if I'm an example? And he is. That'll do it. 759. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. You've provided for us tonight a preamble or introduction to Romans 11, which again will hearken back to Romans 9 and 10 and give us a kind of key to interpret the intention of Paul, which is the intention of the Holy Spirit in these passages. And we have a feeling that this is going to relate to the vision of an enthroned lamb to a horizon of a universal redemption and rectification of things gone wrong that will be once again radically centered in the crucified, resurrected man, Christ Jesus.